destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconis fan podcast broadcasting for as long as possible from ASAF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. We've been encouraged by the Marsco family of corporations to make a retraction to our previous episode, Less is Never More. Less is less and that's sad. If you want more, the Marsco family of companies recommends consumerism. That sounds legit. Marsco. That's all, just Marsco. Okay. <laughs> Very streamlined tagline. <laughs> Uh, this week's episode is 2.0 interview, looking back at our recent actual play test sessions with Exuntraconis author Pierce Fraser. We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So for several long nights in January, we were invited to a playtest session for 2.0. Uh, Pierce Fraser was running the game. It was... Kind of a fun dive into the world that the the game author himself built, seeing how he wanted to describe things and expand on things, and also exploring, I think, significantly rules lighter world of 2.0 and the direction the game might be moving. Now, all of these rules are in an eigenstate. They are subject to change and, in fact, change several times during the playtest, much to my consternation, <laughs> as I have a very small memory and we were playing at midnight. <laughs> but um, I do think the sessions were... A pretty good experience. I enjoyed them, and I really liked working with 2.0. I think it's going to be a fun game. I don't know if we'll be implementing it necessarily at our table until there is perhaps no choice or this current plot arc is gone. This current game is over. But, well, let's talk about it. It was it was a, a good ride. What all did we play? I mean, what were our characters this time? I, I will never ask anybody to talk about their characters again, but for now... <laughs> do we have a big enough memory card in the uh, recorder? Uh... <laughs> Well, we're not asking him to talk about his character. Oh, okay. I will talk about my character. <laughs> I'll be briefer than usual. Okay, so my character. Uh, overall, okay, so the... Don't make me talk about my character. Oh, God. <laughs> so, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> um, so the party concept ended up being a pop detective band called Bang Bang Bang, uh, modeled loosely after the Jody the Pussycat slash Scooby Doo model of slightly cartoony detectiving. Josie. Josie. I said Josie. No. I told. said I Jody. No. <clears throat> okay. I'll rewind it and I'll edit it so I said Josie and I'll be correct. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the editor is always correct. Uh, I, I've been showing up the fact. It, it's true. Um, <laughs> so overall, I think the game started off being, you know, it was going to be a more serious investigating game, but then almost immediately we took it into a kind of light and humorous style, which was a lot of fun, particularly for a game which was kind of a, a one-shot sort of thing. Didn't have characters you were madly in love with necessarily or deeply bonded to. It was kind of fun and frothy. I, I like that. I believe you saw the dermal holograms and went, ooh, and everything just kind of went downhill from there. Uh -huh. Or well, sparkly from there. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I wanted the sparkle and then I saw the best way to implement it. <laughs> Uh, my character was Luca. He was a attention-seeking lead singer, frontman, face-type character, a very fluffy, long-haired Samoyed dog. Uh, 
who, yeah, had the dermal hologram array for maximum glitter. Uh, one of the odd bits in that game was that Pierce kept misgendering me. It was like he never really That's knew. Weird. I, well, yeah, I'm, well, and the character was fairly sexually ambivalent and enthusiastic, but he was male. I, I don't think I ever went away from that, uh-huh. but he was also very fluffy. I don't know. <laughs> that was an odd one. But yeah, fun fun to play a little drama-seeking social whore. Uh, Tygon, who was also with us, was kind of playing a, maybe a, a mystery man type character. I never got a really strong sense for his, his character beyond being kind of a lion, a, lion, a, a playful techie. Uh, I decided, I think, arbitrarily that he was probably playing lead guitar just because we needed another like front stage character in the band. Mm-hmm. But I never really got a strong sense for really who he was or his backstory. So Daphne then? Yeah, a total Daphne. Okay. Basically all lions are Daphne. <laughs> so I was kind of playing the character out of place in a sense. Just playing a fox, had the wings, and they were natural. But mechanically I was really pushing towards how high can I crank this evasion and can I break the game if I do so? How many techniques can I put into all of the flight techniques and can I break the game if I do so? It was a playtest game. It was a playtest game. So mechanically, that was kind of the objective. Be this light, bouncy, flying around fox that takes pot shots and just does not get hit. And it worked 99% of the time. It worked 100% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The, The evasion score, at least in the first two sessions, was really powerful. I mean, we were not getting hit. And that was an interesting side effect of it. Mm-hmm. There's a that is a really major overhaul of the combat system. There, there's a bunch of interlocking systems that are all coming into play on that. So I don't really want to go into it too deeply. But yeah, a very high evasion really becomes a roll of the dice. I mean, you, you don't get hit, you don't get hit, you get hit and you're taken out. Yeah, because you just can't wear armor. Uh, the game definitely seems to be a little bit more balanced to wear some armor and kind of mitigate some of the hits instead of just being live or die. But like you said, there's interlocking stats. It kind of reminds me of mutants and masterminds balance where you can either be very dexterous or very heavily armored, durable or athletic, agile, but uh, it's a continuum and you can't be both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. The other part that I was trying to bring in was kind of fulfilling some of the techie side, um, going that route with the available proficiencies, but also another new system that that 2.0 brings in is a much more structured background. So Mm -hmm. the background brings a lot more structure into the character and then a couple of not huge, but bonuses or abilities that you have that you you really can't replace anywhere else. If you choose a background that you like and it has one or two different paths that you can go down, um, the abilities that you get kind of help define the character. They're not something that, oh, well, I can get this from the background or I can just go spend two of my character points to get instead. So the way this is structured, again, this is a snapshot of the game as of early January. It's a work in progress. The character history backgrounds, you're going to play something like a scholar or a celebrity or something along those lines. And you can either be a happy, happy go lucky celebrity who's in love with their, their life or someone who's kind of hiding from paparazzi and worried about fame. If you choose the positive route of this kind of historical element of your character, you're going to be slowly accruing some abilities that make you a more potent member of the idle rich or the scholarly elite. Maybe you'll start with access to parties or a library and you'll end up with the ability to reroll all language checks or 
spend 200 more credits whenever you spend money, something a little more game changing once a day. If you take the kind of negative, I guess, left hand path, then you'll have a single powerful ability that you can kick in like once per game that is maybe a little bit darker, but much stronger than anything the, the light side can pull out of their back pocket. But you have that at day one and you don't expand beyond it. I mean, the way I chose to describe it was you can't have the utopia path and the dystopia path. Sure. You, you had the, the sounds legit. high level view of, well, this is the background, but we're going to take this in the positive direction and take reflect all the positive attitudes that come out of it. Or you can kind of this is the background and this is the poor way that my character has come out of that. And we're fighting back up. So yeah, it gives you a lot of options for character history, too, which is, I guess, the point of this mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> what were you playing, Wines? Another damn hyena. Um, kind, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of going with the, the very simple idea of uh, Nancy Drew, except as a lateral hyena, a smart, mystery solving, very social and investigative focused character with no combat skills whatsoever. Felt like the sensible character in this party, too. Definitely the sensible character, because dead, not an actual band member, but the. Uh, the producer, the one wearing nice clothes and <laughs> with a with a PDA, or in this case, the the, the half rim goggles with the UI built into them, which really amused me. That's just an awesome tool for a lateral. Oh, I, I love that tool. It's yeah. fun, and and that was fun. And I, I was a little bit concerned that taking absolutely no combat abilities in a game that where it quickly became clear that combat was going to be a part of it. Well, we still found things to do, like interacting with computers and stuff trying to pull fire alarms yeah i think and seb was consistently generous about letting you yeah. not non-combat your way out of combat situations when need to, need be yeah and then not dominate the environment but participate in what's going on and and that was fun and lessons learned from the character building early on though is that there's a mechanic built into the game that lets some of the non-combat or less combat focused characters kind of bring useful things into the combat layout when combat starts I don't think we had enough points to really make use of it, but had you invested a little bit more there, yeah. you could be more non-combat, but still like bring in different ways of being effective. Sure, in terms of playing the terrain. Mm -hmm. So this is the focus mechanic, which operates like many systems have drama dice that let the PC shape the world in small or large ways. Uh -huh. So the one time it came up, Tygon, I think, put an explosive crate somewhere in the <laughs> battlefield the typical kind of... Because the future is full of explosive crates. <laughs> I, I know it is. We know it is. Uh, this is the shape the terrain in some way. Mm -hmm. um, if you had spent more points in focus, you might have been able to rewrite a large chunk of terrain, add a flaming pool or chandeliers to swing from, what have you. So this is a way to make sure the world kind of cathouse to your needs as an adventurer. Mm -hmm. But you also have to choose. It's not simply an advantage you're getting. You have the pool of points, and some of your points can go into shaping the battlefield, but any points that you don't spend there go into your own personal initiative. And there are some additional follow-up combat mechanics that make initiative a good thing to have. Yeah, so you had to really be conservative with your pre-combat point pool, I guess. It's a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also an interesting decision for the PCs to make kind of as a combat is ramping up. Instead of... The, the very traditional, okay, roll initiative, let's lay out the board, and what do you do first? You, you actually have some setup. Well, and if the PCs can jointly spend their points to shape large chunks of the environment, that would be kind of compelling too, is uh, have some team decision on where the enemy thwarting terrain is going to be. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, did anybody have any like particular highlights from the game? I've got at least one moment that made me really happy. Well, just kind of as aforementioned, being able to fi- find places to manipulate the environment and be effective. I mean, in, in a space station, which is where we were, having a reasonable computer access toy, even if you're a lateral, there's lots of things to connect to. And and my character is not a hacker. And of course, the, just having uh, the modern, the then equivalent of a cell phone does not mean you can simply do anything with with any device that you're nearby. Well, it helped we had security clearance. That really opened up some yeah, doors. We, we had security clearance and being able to just like, if we're being attacked by a robot, let's look up the manual for that robot. <laughs> How do these things work? Where's the power core? Now, your character arguably won the final combat more or less single-handedly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ashtar was, yeah, at the end of it, I think the two combat idiots were both down. <laughs> yeah. This was probably my fault. Uh, we were in a firefight with the end mini bosses and my character had a series of bad die rolls. And while he could have taken out the entire bad guy suite at once, ended up dying himself. And the person that went to rescue me also dropped two rounds later. Mm -hmm. This left Ashtar trying more or less squaring off with the other ranged guy. I think we learned very quickly that melee is much quicker this time around and much more lethal this time around. The number of, Counters and follow-up hits very rapidly outpace the number of shots you can get with the pistol. Yeah, I want to get into that later on. And now that is the point where I think I was doing fine. I had I had the evasion, I had the room to maneuver around, and I had a very accurate pistol. So I was getting good shots in and getting in and out. But that is something where, okay, half the party's dead. The other player is not as effective in this scenario. What can I do? Well, I can dance around to be invincible forever and take pot shots at them until they fall over. So, Whereas Wines added a countdown to the combat. <laughs> right. By triggering the fire, fire extinguishing system. Yeah, so rapidly hardening foam cascaded down from the sky and slowly piled up on all of the many, many bodies in the room. It was great. <laughs> and then they came and cut us out of it, which was, which was nice. And then reinforcements came. Yay. My, my favorite moment for my character, it was in the uh, the one session we didn't record, which is the kind of startup half session. Mm-hmm. Of course, we were playing a, a rock band, and my character was really hoping that we'd be able to get the halftime sh- slot, the big show for the, the ball ball game that was playing. And we didn't. Instead, we were going to be investigating an IRPF scenario. And Luca was, was very broken up by this because he had his fuzzy little heart set on singing in front of the entire solar system. Luca wasn't really a details man, though. Well, I, I probably shouldn't have expected to get that particular gig, but but the idea was that maybe we could. There were, we couldn't have gotten it if we weren't there. I mean, obviously. <laughs> right. So I was I was moping, and a little service bot noticed us and uh, said something along the general lines of, "Do you require attention?" <laughs> to which I th- think Ashtar maybe or no, Wine said, uh, "You have no idea how much attention he requires." <laughs> It went on, went on a little bit from there. Where's the next page? And I, I, I sniffled a little bit, and the robot said, there, there, you are a good person. And I said, it's like you know me. And the robot said, no, I do not. And <laughs> that made me laugh for like two or three minutes after that. I was, I was very happy with that little moment. Poor doggy. So sad. So there were two different combats. One was a fairly balanced um, PC versus NPC combat that's the one that ended with the cascade of hardening fire foam yeah and the other was against a 
a monster, not really an NPC. Yeah. And I did like that we got to see both sides of that, both sides of the house there. The the monster, which was really more comparable to, say, a fourth edition, much more comparable to a fourth edition solo type mob, which really is by itself a matchup for a full party. Um, just watching how it moved and how Seth made it a real effective and threatening encounter. I enjoyed both sides of this. I remember one thing kind of coming up and the bias against laterals has always confused me a little bit. I mean, I understand that it's part of the game universe. Don't don't question it. But one thing was coming up was trying to solve a murder and having a lateral character who had discriminatory scent and asking to be able to sniff people and sniff things to, to be able to, to track who they are and then having odd reactions. But at, but then thinking, you know, this is a universe in which there's a fair number of vectors, non-lateral vectors, who do have discriminatory smell and who will be sniffing things. And so for people to react especially oddly to a lateral with discriminatory smell sniffing things, you see what I'm saying? I, I, I do. Later on, I think during the after session uh, for the final game, Seth talked a little bit about that. Uh-huh. And he was mentioning that there's not a strong bias against like lateral snakes because snakes are lateral as a rule and the world is used to compensating around them. But other vectors, laterals are one in 200 or so uh-huh. and a little more rare. But but yeah, there was an inconsistency there because they are a part of the world and they do behave in this manner and that manner. And black bears also have very sensitive noses. So right. yeah, it was a little, a little bit like an unrealized portion of the world. It's hard for human players to, to deal with because humans don't ever sniff things or scent mark things, whether we're lateral or not. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard to drop yourself into that world and to try to quite, understand that and then there's the problem of enforcing a negative stereotype aspect of the world that is very hard to do in any game situation right no one ever remembers that bone nars are a minority that people don't like and they don't play that they don't want to play they don't want to trot on the downtrodden as a game master you might not want to play that card too heavily either because it could take away someone's fun not to say i i i understand yeah laterals they're just weird it's just hard to know exactly how to play that. So let's take a look at the basic mechanics of this iteration of the rules. Now, it's worth noting, again, they did change substantially in the third session and in some minor ways that I really didn't quite follow in the second session, I think tied to encumbrance and armor, which my character was wearing shorts. (laughs) It didn't really affect me very much. We had to fight to get you to wear anything. Well, no, I I, I wore shorts. Anything other than holograms. It's very liberating. (laughs) Good ventilation on those holograms. You know, I have to say, my heart was broken when at some point in time, Sev, and I ignored him on this, said, you can't just wear holograms. <laughs> well, why can't I just wear holograms? Not I mean, with that attitude. There's the very reasonable point that people are going to be sitting on the same chair you are. So I was wearing more than just holograms, but they should be there should be hologram clothes. People will take advantage of that in various ways, positive and negative, but they should be there for them. That's <laughs> why. Why else have the dermal plating in your skin that projects holograms around you? Well, I could think of hundreds of reasons, really. <laughs> many, many reasons. But anyway, basic mechanics. The overall, I feel like there was a strong shift in the mechanics of this edition towards like rules light but combat heavy, which is an unusual combination. Uh, the stat pool, if you're familiar with Exundraconus, it's got quite a lot of stats, but they're well organized. 
Uh, in the original 1.0 game, there's something like 16 stats, maybe maybe 20. It's um, four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 20 stats. So th- each each column has something like a perceive, a push, a resist, detect, flexibility. Yeah. And then the four columns are along the general lines of community, mind, body, economy. Uh, this system had three columns and three rows. It was mind, body, community, and basically do resist and perceive. So much smaller grid, more or less was how Ashtar's been trending his version of the game here to, to, a, to, a, to some degree. And then the skill list was reduced from... 25 or so to 10 or so tightening up most of the oddball pairs and getting rid of a lot of redundancies and things like that much streamlining of of skill set and a lot of streamlining of the dice rolls yeah so Conus has a 1.0 has x number of dice plus skill modifier versus a difficulty of eight or so so it's and then a varying number of dice sizes, D8, D10, D12, based on how you prioritize your stats. Um, it seems like the dice pools in 2.0 were much more situational and much more pared down. There was one die. So this is a place that changed substantially in the third session. Uh, so the first system, the first version of the system was one die for your stat and one die for your proficiency and then a series of modifiers. So if your character was particularly optimized for something because of their body, they would have had um, a D12 in their stat die. And if if I never really figured out what would optimize the second die, just some random benefit or something like that. Like I think dogs were naturally optimized towards athletics or something like that. So you might have a second proficiency die that was D12 if you're really good at a thing. And then to that, you'd add your proficiency, your number of points in your proficiency, your number of points in your stat and a bonus based on your tool set. And I think that was I think that was it. There might have been a th- another modifier that you would add. No, that was pretty much it. Yeah, so stat die plus proficiency die plus skill plus stat plus equipment. It seems like a lot of numbers, but you'd be rolling the same sets over and over again, so it kind of streamlined itself fairly quickly. And that was versus a sliding difficulty of between like 12 at the low end and 35 at the unattainably high end. Overall, it felt like those first two sessions... My, my dice were unusually hot those first two sessions, but it felt very kind of party friendly at that point. In the third session of the game, there was a substantial change. The difficulty pool modifier went down to like just 15 or so. So one issue we were encountering with the uh, first version of these rules was that the dice pool really kind of drowned out your stats in many ways. There were so many modifiers, you could get like 12 points of modifiers that your level of the stat seemed kind of insignificant and the difficulty was like the di- it's like the dice rolls were drowned or your stat size was drowned some some element of the of the pool just didn't feel very significant and the like variability of the die kind of overwhelmed your like strength of 2 or strength of 3 or whatever so there was kind of the sense that your stuff on paper didn't matter as much as it could have and the second iteration i think really fixed that a lot um so the, yeah the second stat uh, the difficulty modifier was brought down to like 15, I think, standard, which is much smaller odds range. And every point you had modified a single die roll. So every point in strength or your skill or whatever felt much more important. I think the difficulty range was small enough that 
your character sheet mattered a lot more. And I did like that a lot. I mean, it was really just a fundamental shift in probability, if you if you want to put it that way. Yeah, the scale really dropped. With 1.0, you're dealing with dice pools, you're dealing with multiple successes, but the difficulty never changes. More or less never changes. So as your characters improve and get better, you add more and more dice to the dice pool, you add more modifiers, and your chances of failure really, really start dropping. Mm-hmm things will take more successes. So maybe you're going to have to start compiling roles. And succeeding but not succeeding all the way is kind of an interesting position to be put in. It, it's You're not failing very often, but you're not really nailing those critical moments or getting that dramatic success that players are often looking for. Uh, 2.0 upends that entirely and moves to a sliding difficulty scale. So what you're rolling and what your modifiers are generally going to be fairly static but the difficulty just keeps going up as the challenge goes up. And if you look at it from the player side, your improvement is by really improving all of your modifiers, getting better gear, more modifiers, leveling up your proficiencies and your characters, more modifiers. And then you still get a little bit of randomness. Well, I shouldn't say a little, but you still get your randomness with the dice rolls that you're making, but you're generally only rolling one dice. So if you look at 1.0 and you're rolling five dice in your pool, the chances of getting a very high or a very low is um, compounded and much smaller. You will almost always roll more kind of center um, center of what your number range is. But when you go back to only taking a single dice at a time, you have much more of those dramatic finishers. You have the chances to roll very high on the dice and really push how far above the difficulty you can get or you have the chance to roll really low on the dice and really be in danger of the critical failures more often. And if you'd invested in your kind of resilience, you could have bought focus or whatever the other one is, and that would let you have some re-rolls to save your butt when need be. Readiness, I believe. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, A change that the second, a change that, that entered the game in the third session that's unique and not, not a bad idea at all, but a little hard for you to keep track of in the one game that you played it in was that the difficulty of the scenario played off against the lovely proficiency in some way. So if you were highly skilled with computers and in an easy skill challenge for computers, I think your die was maybe maximized. It was like a 10 automatically at the top of its role. But if you were not very good at computers and it was a tough computer challenge, then it was like a flat one or at some sort of penalty or it lowered a die or something along those general lines. So the difficulty level played against your proficiency and skill in the scenario to affect how your dice rolled, which is a neat mechanic, one that I've never seen before, but it would take probably a few sessions for you to really like get it. And I never quite got to that point since it only came up in one session and it was new for everybody, even, even Tygon who'd done a lot of play tests before. Not a bad approach. It was intended to minimize die rolls and dice complications, which if you're playing a lot of the Roll20 online platform is probably a bigger issue than if you're just at your table rolling fistfuls of dice. But I don't know. You could make an argument of that either way. It did feel like it was a little bit more suited to the Roll20, the online table space. I know when you're sitting around the table, throwing a fistful of dice is rather rewarding. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's worth saying is that the majority of play, as far as I know for this game, is done in a virtual space. Almost all the playtests seem to be recorded on YouTube and done on a 
a multiplayer game map system, Roll20 again. So that's more this game's home than um, than the table. So uh, character sheets. Um, I think we got into a lot of this already, but how did character design feel for you? I mean, I felt like I kind of needed a flowchart to get through the character design, but it was fairly well provided within the rules that we had. And if you took it step by step, every step made sense. And I could kind of see where I wanted to allocate points or take choices to further the character I wanted to build. So it wasn't, it wasn't trivial, but it, it made sense and it flowed from one step to the next. And there were a lot of choices to make too. I mean, beyond just assign your stats and skills, there was a kind of web of options of pick one of these three, pick two of these three. And each one of those, particularly if you're a new player to the system, could change the way your character played significantly. Well, and a pretty consistent theme was whatever choice you make would give you two advantages and one disadvantage. That carried through several steps of the character creation process to get a more balanced get a character with both strengths and weaknesses, or a character where if you bought off the different weaknesses, you just didn't have as many strengths. Mm-hmm. My general feeling uh, was I, I really felt star for points, um, partially because you, well, you couldn't be good at everything, which which is reasonable. But I feel like if your background is White Wolf, Mutants and Masterminds, or any of the other games where you kind of start as a pretty competent person, you weren't there. And I've, I've been trying to deal with this with HSD. It's a big universe, a big sparkly universe, but you're playing a level one character at level one. You're not playing a, a fully fleshed out character. You're a newbie. And that's that's how this game played out, which which is fine. But but I always when I bring a character to HSD, I feel like I'm bringing in like a fifth level character. But it turns out it's a first level world. Live and learn. I didn't really have the same experience. I I felt like I had a fairly well built character. There was definitely room to grow. There was definitely some places where I could kind of map out where else I wanted to go. But I, I think I definitely had. Certain places where I'd invested heavily and had some advantages, had some natural affinity for, and some weaknesses to compensate for it. With the fairly minimal skill list, I never really felt like there was nothing I couldn't do because at least everything I tried to do, I could at least make a justification for, be passable at. And that was kind of nice because I don't like, I mean, my character in, in our, our Sunday game has some crippling weaknesses. He cannot in a social role, save his life because the odds of him rolling an eight on his one D eight in body dexterity is, is pretty low. One in eight. In fact, body dexterity, social roles. Are we interpretive dancing? <laughs> Frequently, <laughs> but I didn't optimize for interpretive dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in, in this system, I never really had that, that feeling, although I was rolling mostly physical and social roles for a character. It was mostly physical and social, nothing much going on upstairs. Although I think on the one or two brain rolls, I managed to like roll maximum on the dice each time. So there was that. I, I never really felt totally incompetent in a situation. And that, that's a pretty good feeling. I mean, that that is how I, as a human being in 20th century Earth, would like to feel like unless I'm suddenly dealing with an engineering task where I cannot know anything. I want to feel like I have a shot. And I felt like I always had that shot in the system. That's good. That is the game state that you would that you should expect for low level characters, though. Before you really start specializing and going down certain paths, and before the challenge ratings start really moving upwards, everyone should be fairly competent at base day-to-day type stuff. It feels like in 1.0 you're guaranteed to be crippled somewhere. Like, really, 
just fundamentally incompetent as a level one character. And I think that's part of the, the scarcity and points juggling. I guess you could have an even spread of like two dots across all your stats, but you wouldn't excel anywhere. And you almost have to, to take advantage of like the focus ability mechanic and things like that. So it didn't feel like I was required to suck in this version, which I liked. Well, one thing I, I didn't like is that you don't have them that many points and you're, Character stats are bought on exponential cost scales. So being more than a point ahead of everyone else is really crippling in terms of how many character points it costs. And you don't get a lot of benefit from it. Uh, So a complaint I had is that stat-wise, all characters looked pretty freaking similar. And I I don't like that. I mean, I I think in a when you have, if you want a, a realistic world with humans, sure, we're all pretty similar to each other. Although even then, there's there's a good variation in our species. When you've got lateral mi- mouse-sized mice and rhinoceroses and stuff like that, there should be a huge difference in stats. Now, a, a difference too big to allow for first-level characters, which is why we have reclaiming surgeries to say, yes, you can have your tiger claws, yes, you can have your night vision, just not at the start of the game. But still, I felt like the stat stat range was just too narrow for my liking. But that's, that's just me. I feel like I'm being a little bit contrarian today, but uh-huh. uh, that was not really my experience with it. And I think where that comes from is, well, a quick note about the experience chart is that you basically had six different tracks that you can go down. Each track kind of works in parallel and has slowly increasing costs as you start moving upwards along the track. And is tied to one of your stats. So there's like a more physically focused body do stat and a more social consequence focused community perceived track and things like that. The way that you have the slowly increasing cost as you move up the track uh, really facilitates a wide versus tall argument. And this is, where are you going to spend your resource, resources? You can go tall and really focus on one or two and really advance there. And you're not going to just completely blow off the charts, but you're going to be several tiers, multiple tiers ahead of some of your friends. Um, or you can go wide and kind of spread your points out and kind of work up all six tracks at once. And you're never really going to excel at anything, but you might have a couple more raw numbers, a couple more points or a couple more nodes bought out than the tall. Well, another part of that is that if you just, let's say you just want to play a character who's really strong. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't just put points in strength. You have to buy up that column, which involves a stat increase and then an increase in this or that, a this or that, this or that, and then a stat increase again. And then there's a lot of stuff you have to buy along the way to get the opportunity to have that extra strength all of which have a slowly increasing cost. Right. Uh, so it's doubly hard. Not only does, does each point of, extra point of strength cost more points, but you're forced to invest in stuff that you may not care about to get to it. Now, the advantage is you don't want to have totally one-dimensional characters. Point-based systems can allow for, I want to put every single point I have in computer programming, so I'm better <laughs> programming than, than God, which is not an interesting character. But I, I, I don't know. It's... A little bit samey. You, well, you took my argument right out from under what I was about to say, because I was about to compare that to a point-based system. Mutants and Masterminds or sure. Superheroes springs to mind. If you have the ability to put all of your points in speed and you're going to be a speedster, you're going to be the best speedster, but everything else is just going to suck. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that 
2.0 really prevents you from doing is you, you can't put all your points into body strength. Right. You, right. you can't put all of your points into the pure attribute. Um, if you took a look at the experience chart, though, the options that you had that spaced out the two body points did tend to be more of some of the body type abilities. Sure. You didn't get a lot, bunch of proficiencies in there. You were getting options for speed or for readiness or techniques. And um, there were options at every level. So right. you could usually, you could stack up on techniques, which played out a little like very combat focused feats might in a, in a uh -huh. different game or this, the focus abilities in HSD 1.0, or you could buy um, resilience, which is hit points and saving throws and things like that. So there were options at every level that you could use to tailor yourself more versatile or more tanky depending. But I do agree with you that taken as a whole, whether you go tall or go wide on the experience chart, uh, the people who go tall are rarely going to be more than maybe one strength point ahead yeah, of the yeah. other people. So if you're just looking at it from a purely attribute-focused side, uh -huh. you're not going to get a very large delta between the different characters. Right. I don't think any of us really had time to explore the the techniques section. And there was so much good stuff there. You could use that to build out a like a throwing specialist character or a evasive dancer type or whatever. And there were like level three techniques that built up on other ones that were quite potent. And those really did play like second edition mid-tier feats. And they were achievable at level one. So there were some options there that would really unicify your character in, in some deep ways. Oh, no. I, um, I went deep into technique. I had, I think, I had to buy out six different technique points to get the te techniques I wanted. And that took a rather significant portion of the options that you had to put those together. Um, but that got me all the way down the tree to improve your winged uh, flight. Ah. So the first level was just combat jump. You you can fly in combat and you're not a flying target. So you're sort of taking a deep dive into this mechanic. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, you got to the point where you could split your move and fly somewhere, take a shot and then land. And that that significantly changed how I approached combat. And really no one else on the field was going to be moving like my character was at that time. I think I sort of went in a similar direction, sort of. I, I blew a lot of my technique points on one technique, which was functionally let me ignore most attacks of opportunity in melee. As it turns out, there are attacks of opportunity from ranged, which I'm, I'm not sure I feel about that. And those 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 took me down. But uh, for a, a very athletic, dancey character, it was kind of a neat and exciting path. I'd just like to say, and this doesn't actually even relate to the new rule system, but none of the GMs, while hyenas are felids, <laughs> and I don't contest this, hyenas should not have access to reclaimed retractable claws or cat-like reflexes, and I'm consistently denied my ability to, to, for buying hyena butter as an in-class ability. Even though it is from the Mustelid family, hyenas should have it. I don't know why you people are fighting me on this, but fine. I mean, you have you have to get that other surgery that lets you cross genome reclaim, and then you can you but, can pick it up. Butter is a proud part of hyena physiology, sir. And you're denying me. Cheetahs don't have retractable claws. That's true. That's true. See, in game, the <laughs> the world of reclaim surgeries is a branded product. That is licensed out to people. It is not actually tied to your biology in any meaningful way because you're human, except your laterals who are not as human. They can pick a lot. Mm -hmm. So you're you're given a at birth, you're given a set package of like 
Stover's chocolate candy surgical modifications. Yeah, let me tell you about those hanging packages. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did combat flow feel? I I felt good about it. I thought that it moved pretty quickly, given that you're a bunch of newbies. Except for, I think I was the worst in the entire table about remembering how the rules worked. I could never quite get the dice system down, particularly when it evolved suddenly. The the way the difficulty worked on the proficiency side of things, I, I just couldn't process. And that that's totally on me. It's a simple mechanic, but I never really got that. Beyond that recurring stupidity on my part, I felt like combat was pretty smooth. You asked about combat. Yeah, I agree. I think combat flowed very well and it it really reached a flow that 1.0 never really reached part of the reason for that is 1.0 has the constant breaks for oop let me go look up the parry rules again or oop let me go look up the grappling rules again or oop let me go look up the throwing rules cuz i have a grenade and there are a lot of different systems that don't necessarily interact in 1.0 that you do need a cheat sheet and you do need to I needed to constantly refer back to it because I wasn't using the same system consistently enough to really muscle memory it. Um, 2.0, I think, removes some of the complexity of the systems, makes it more streamlined, and honestly pushes some of the calculations and pushes some of the setup into the setup phase with the weapon cards and the armor cards and the pre-calculating out what your bonuses are going to be, that type of thing, that it really lets combat have much quicker turns and much better flow. I, I was a little bit uncomfortable with, and, and this is just on discomfort. I haven't played with it enough to really have a sense for whether it's a bad idea or not, but the reactive range responses, yeah. or range attack responses, the one that killed me. Right. I, I'm, I have problems with that. A, a, a lot of war games will, will tinker in the, the with uh, the responsive fire, the ability to, to like go on to an overwatch mode so that when somebody moves, you can fire. The problem is once you hand people that, then everyone, you've got a World War I scenario. Everyone goes into reactive mode. Yeah. And the first person who sticks his head out gets shot to pieces, um, which in the real world is like, you know, well, trench warfare. Uh, also, in the real world, we don't use swords anymore. And that's fine. I don't think any of us want to say, I want to go to Iraq and fight for American freedom using a sword. But in these fantasy sci-fi games, we want range, we want uh, close combat to be an option. And that requires warping reality heavily. Yeah. I mean, if we step back to fourth ed, which is, I think the game that plays this the best, if you're in melee, you have some serious control over things. You can, Punish sure. people that try and cast a spell. Sure, or, or, or Warhammer. Uh, even war games will give close combat a lot of advantages because the, it's very dangerous making it to close combat. And the guys at the range combat can sit there and pull the triggers for a, a bunch of shots before you get to do anything. Yeah. Uh, so, so the payoff to being in close combat has to be large. And that, that for close combat to be an option. And that punishing thing that, like, the paladin trick of, like, swatting people or the bopping the wizard with your sword because you cast a spell, that is kind of the prerogative of the melee character. Right. So in this this version of the rules for, for HSD, any character with a weapon of any sort can really take an attack of opportunity against somebody that moves, uh-huh. including ranged characters, which does feel like reality. If you try and run across a battlefield, you will get mowed down. 
that's that's life sure. but is it role-playing game that, that's hard to say because it it really disincentivizes you from being, being in melee because you don't really gain more control over the field much also even if you have no no melee people it kind of shuts down movement uh on the battlefield a lot yeah when again anybody who moves is going to be punished from multiple different directions is it excessive in this rule system i don't know but i'm concerned about it i'm skeptical of it i found the i mean it was a fairly short rule yeah play test it was a single play test and let's keep in mind that it was a play test without armor yeah, yes. like we were only with evasions, and we we were basically playing with full sized weapons with no armor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So everything was a little bit more lethal than expected. But this is also a place where the melee weapons are as lethal or more lethal than most of the ranged weapons. Right. That uh, this is not a system where a double tap with a pistol is going to put someone on the ground, which is kind of what you would expect of a double tap with a pistol. Uh-huh. Um. The the ranged weapons definitely have some heft to them, and if you're if you're really skilled and you're getting like a critical or a very high damage roll with them, they can definitely put someone down. But once you get into melee, melee has so many more chances to hit back and forth, and I think melee really had a much higher like lethality rating. Once you got a hit that wasn't just a glancing blow, like the melee hits really mattered. Sure. Which which they should, because otherwise, why ever bother with melee? Melee is dangerous. It really is. Mm-hmm. Well, it felt like I was getting, in some cases, like four or five attacks per round, because in in, in a scrum, you can respond to anybody that attacks you, basically. Uh-huh. So if anybody's within your strike distance and they strike you, you get a strike back. So there was a lot of return fire, and it was it was risky as hell, which, again, is reality, but it's not... It's not heroic fantasy necessarily. Well, it, it's parallel to you know, getting a bit off topic, but in, in Warhammer, melee troops fire during your turn only, with alternating your turn, my turn. Hmm. Melee troops fight every in every round. My melee troops fight in my turn. Your melee troops fight in my turn. Your melee troops fight in your turn, and my melee troops fight, making melee much more decisive once you can survive getting to it. I, I feel like that's just kind of part of. Again, these fantasy worlds in which both range combat and close combat exist, which none of which relate to reality, because <laughs> in, in our world, range combat won. Yeah. Well, that, that's, Game over. Yep. So there's a new mechanic that I liked a lot, and I thought it was pretty inspired, and that was the, uh, oh, it wasn't athletic maneuver, but it was the kind of a stunt. It was the stunt mechanic. It was a generic mechanic, very clean, that was... My character wants to do some twisty, flippy nonsense to get from point A to point B. My character wants to scale a wall, swing a chandelier. But fundamentally, it's any number of transactional movements between point A and point B in a list. Every single transaction or stage in it adds plus one to difficulty. And then it's a very basic athletic role. So you spend two movement actions, calculate the number of steps or hops or swings or dramatic flourishes, add that to your difficulty and roll it. And that's a clean mechanic for any amount of ninja BS that you're throwing on your journey over there. I really like the stunt mechanic. It was clean, simple, and allowed for a lot of stylish RP style movement. I like that one. Well, it, it really, it literally is turning on cinematic mode. Yes. And I think, I think the rule set does lend itself very well to that. 
Yes, unless the antagonists have guns pointed at you. <laughs> well, there's your problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, even then, I mean, the two of you got into the melee and basically dusted up and then fell over. And that was the dice. Almost literally between two shots of my pistol. Yeah. I, I didn't even get a chance to help because that melee just no, up that, and down and, so fast. And that was against unnamed mooks. We were rolling ones. Mm-hmm. And you can't do anything if the dice rolls are not with you. And again, I, I do want to make the point again, though, that we had no armor. Like nobody on the yeah. field had any armor and armor would have almost completely reduced the glancing blows and made them insignificant. You would have had to land a real hit for it to matter. And even then, it would have taken a couple of real hits by not having armor. Even the glancing blows were doing enough just slice damage that a couple of glancing blows would have taken us out. So also a comment about the about the mook design that he's, he's playing with their reduced hit point or ordinary people with full offensive potential. I mean, OK, you can take them down fast, but they've got just as much firepower as you do. And that's you better take them down fast because otherwise you're going to get reamed. Well, that's that's 4.0 as well. I mean, that was the kind of I mean, they were mm. they had standardized damage, but still quite high. No, no, sorry. Uh, minions had low damage. Now, collectively, with lots of them, they they could do a good amount of damage. Mm. But but this version of the minion does just as much damage as the standard mobs. Mm. That's that, that's tough. That's that's punishing. Uh, am I saying it's it's automatically bad? No, but but it's tough. <laughs> we were mooks too, like full on high damage kind of augmented for damage in a lot of our cases, no armor. So one, maybe two hits would take us out. Yeah. So it it was mooks on both sides of the table. And I think that showed just how quickly everything, how quickly the initial engage kind of settled out and fell back to the back lines. And that's something I do like. There's a place for the slow ablative damage, like in in D&D, where, oh no, I've been shot six times. If I'm shot with five more arrows, I'm going to fall unconscious, which doesn't make a lot of sense that one can map to reality. I, I, I kind of, I've been enjoying the white wolf and kind of this, this combat style where, okay, you're missed by the bullet, you're missed by the bullet. Oh God, you're hit by the bullet. This really stinks. I would prefer that to the slow, oh, I've been hit by five bullets, seven more and I'm toast. <laughs> that, that's a little bit too wacky for it's me. It's only the last hit point that matters. <laughs> right, right. So where are those bullets going anyways? Oh, my arm flesh once again has another bullet in it. <laughs> <laughs> Armor mitigates that, but it never really takes away. A, a powerful crit is still a powerful crit in this yeah. edition. Yeah. Like, if you land, like if you land a glancing blow, a glancing blow is never going to do a lot of damage just from the way the mechanics interact. If you land a solid hit, you might do a, a good hit. You might do a glancing blow. Um, but if you land like the really solid hit on a character with no armor, you suddenly enter a world where the damage range can go up into the you're now a smear on the ground amounts yeah. because Without armor, which is a hit point booster, the amount of damage that you get on like a critical is just going to take a lightly or unarmored character down. Uh, back back to 2.0, though, um, before we kind of wrap up the discussion, I, I, there's a couple of scenes I want to get back to as well that I've just forgotten about momentarily. But any other strengths and weaknesses of the 2.0 system as we saw it that just kind of stand out? Well, the, the, the skill, the, 
the act to defend perceive it's pretty obvious what any one stat does if there's any question of what what stat should i map this to if you can't figure it out maybe you shouldn't be playing role-playing games (laughs) (laughs) and the minimal skill list really helped with that as well i think that at a mature table or a table that's been doing this for a while or has experience with rules light you can maybe let up on the pre-associated pairings like maybe you don't have to use body strength with athletics necessarily when you've learned what you're doing and have explored explored the game a lot and does it say that you have to do that um it more more so than the than 1.0 it strongly suggests certain pairings and i think some of them are just just on this edge of required okay okay and to preface um i think it's intentional but going hand in hand with that the skill list is greatly reduced uh, I think that's a weakness, especially for the type of game that I'm tend towards. Uh, you, you simply would not see a varied skill challenge with the 2.0 rule set because it lends itself so directly to you're going to use this attribute and the skill that's relevant at the moment. So there are ways of being just better and situationally better as well. There's a system called notoriety that we haven't really opened up yet in here. Notoriety lets you, as your character progresses in, quote, level, unquote, lets you mm, buff your weapons and add extra capabilities to your equipment, but also to your own abilities. So you can add situational enhancements to your, maybe even to a skill, a certain skill, but definitely to things like retractable claws and like inbuilt advantages. So with the right notoriety, you could say, I have a plus five bonus in certain circumstances to my my this or that particularly like if you have a proficiency that ties into a certain skill or a technique that ties to athletics or something you can buff that unique thing i'm really not explaining this very well but the notoriety rule lets you add enhancements to things and you can apply to things that are part of your character rather than just equipment yeah that's cool so, so if you want to have super super badass claws you can have super badass claws but it's also kind of narrow cast too because you can it, it you should say under these specific circumstances so underwater or something like that. That's a place that lets you tailor your character in more specific ways. Now, the skill list is still limited, but I personally liked this because it felt more like it felt more like fate. It felt more like 4.0. The skill list was so limited that you had to do some free interpretation. Right. And since I, I, we, we've been bucking up against the complex skill list of, two, of 1.0, it actually felt better to me for just clarity more than anything else. Yeah. And I think that is perspective because I think 2.0 skills are very clean. Like they're very cleanly divided. You don't have a question of, should I use this skill or this other skill? There is one skill for the occasion. There's one skill for the challenge and they just map very directly. Whereas in 1.0, a lot of the skills do have overlap. So they do have two different approaches to the same problem. So while you can't approach it from different directions, you can also have characters that maybe have some points that kind of fuzz the lines between different proficiencies. And I'm a little bit more of a fan of having more proficiencies, but those proficiencies maybe have a little bit of overlap and you can play with them so that maybe you really have a strength in this scenario, but it applies a little bit in some of the related type scenarios. For example, sciences, you might be really good at one specific science, but you have a decent proficiency, a little bit of crossover into some of the other sciences or in communication. Maybe you're really good at one specific communication proficiency, but you're not completely useless at others. And you don't really get that with the 2.0 system. There are parts of the 
uh, equipment rules that are have this kind of specific tailored this in this scenario I will shine thing like what is the so every every role has an equipment cost or equipment bonus rather with it so if you have a tool modifier yeah if you have a bicycle a very low tech solution there you get a plus three bonus to your athletics role under move fast circumstances if you have a a multi-pass you get a plus three bonus to certain government transactions but if you have an IRPF badge you get a plus five bonus to certain circumstances and a minus maybe even a penalty in other circumstances. So your tools carry a lot of the uniqueification of your character, maybe more so than the skill list. Right. And we, which, which I'm okay with. I, I like that, that in a high, high tech setting, your tools should be incredibly important. Yeah. And you can link that and you do link that immediately back into the notoriety system. Uh, to take your previous example, if you have a bicycle on a chase, you might have a tool bonus of O plus three. If you have a motorcycle on a chase, that raises you up to like a competent tool, so a plus five. And if you have your signature gear motorcycle. But if you've tricked out your motorcycle with a bigger engine, flash, it's something that you've really put effort and thought and built a character around as like, this is your signature ride, and you've put your point of notoriety into that, mm -hmm. then that becomes a much better tool for the occasion, and you might be looking at a plus eight bonus or... And, and that helps w one problem, a problem in sci-fi settings. I think Phil Foglio made fun, fun of it once in one of his old uh, Dragon Magazine's cartoons. It's like the, the wizard saying, oh, this is my magic staff. I got it from saving the Elf King. <laughs> and the other guy says, oh, this is my laser pistol. I bought it at Kmart for ten ninety five. <laughs> notoriety letting you have a better tool. Well, I mean, anyone can go out and buy the the lockpick set that you you have but theirs isn't a super fancy version like yours. Um, so that makes you feel a little bit like you have a, a difference which cannot be yeah. fixed by spending five credits. I've got a lockpick. I've got a sonic screwdriver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one, one image from the game that I would just want to bring up before we let this one go was when we first landed at the Blue Sky Station. Mm -hmm. It was surrounded by flagships from the various corporations, and they had been filling their space void with like hollow sparkle glitz. And we're projecting images of like stylized dragons running up and down the length of them and flares and things like that. And the kind of the festive carnival atmosphere of that, but on these giant ships, it's like that scene at the end of, um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where there was this massive display of firework technology that could not be, but if it was holograms then maybe it could be, that was just a really pretty image. And I liked that kind of just that moment of going on board this ship in an environment that was kind of being technologically fabulous for, for reasons that were purely entertaining entertainment driven. I, I like that moment and a lot. Amongst them, wasn't there the, the one RPF ship that wasn't playing along. So yeah. all the hollow images would just stop and skip past it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which that amused me greatly. And then, and then encountering the bio ship, which is kind of another end of the spectrum as well. That was a view of a piece of technology we have not explored in our game. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was neat to encounter that. Yeah. Less neat if you're the deck crew dealing with a ship whose attitude thrusters emit pus, but. <laughs> so to wrap this one up, um, would you consider switching to 2.0? Now, bearing in mind, this is a transitional system, but. The specific version, say. Well, I, I like the way it plays. Uh, I, I have no complaints about that. I, I need to see more, but 
overall, I'm, I'm positive on it. And I, I do like simplification. I don't think this is simplification to the point of, of absurdity. Um, would like to see the character, the differences between the physical differences between characters have a bit more meaning, but yeah, I'm a furry obsessing over uh, physical form. Right now, I would I would say yes. If I was running my own HSD campaign, which I am not, uh, I, I've been kind of thwarted by the 1.0 combat rules a number of times. I still don't quite understand them. And I would cheerfully switch to this, I think mostly because it reminds me of um, the world of rules like gaming more than 1.0 does. The place where I'd, I'd need a fix would be something analogous to feats or non-combat focused proficiencies that would let you expand your communication skills in some meaningful way that wasn't directly combat related. There are ways to do that. I think that simply adapting the technique rules to non-combat stuff would probably do just fine. But if I could resolve that pain point, then I would, I would close my 1.0 in and cheerfully move on. Otherwise, I think if I was to run a short arc, I would cheerfully go with 2.0. I don't know about a long-term campaign right now, though. It's hard to say. And that's about where I am. Um, I would cheerfully play a 2.0 campaign. I do enjoy the rule set. I think it allows for interesting characters. Um, I don't think it's a perfect match for my game style, though, which tends to be a little bit more of a slow build, longer running, um, more social and less combat focused. And it's not a bad system by any means. And it is one I'd be happy to play, but don't quite think it's a great match for me to run. Yeah, on the social community side, it, it really isn't quite there yet. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. Although another problem of running 1.0 is you're not going to get the security updates. But um, thank you. <laughs> on that note, I say we shut down this discussion. Uh, take care, enjoy your rule system of choice, and catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club, and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 